and I want to say good morning to those of you who are now joining us online. We had about 25 minutes or so where things were not actually connecting digitally, and so we believe we've got that resolved and reconciled. You want us to do all that again, Eric? Yeah, would you just sort of like, mm, yes. So I want to say good morning uh, to the folks uh, online, also on all three floors of this campus. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor down here. And I've also been directed by our equipping pastor, Mike Hall, that I also need to make one more introduction. This is my top lip. Apparently, no one has seen that in 15 years. And so this morning, ta-da, it lives, it lives, my top lip lives today. So, yeah, this is sort of a little bit in honor of my good buddy, Larry Azell, who about every other month would go, hey, have you ever thought about shaving that? Kind of that knowing, like, you, you really, you, you should. So for you, Larry, now welcome to the middle of August, the summer of 2020 in East Texas in our world, and there is a lot going on. Perhaps you've noticed uh, 2020 has become sort of the synonym for that which is absolutely, utterly crazy and catastrophic, right? But we didn't get here overnight, we didn't just wake up in March of 2020 and suddenly things just fell off a cliff. No, no, no. Things have been building and boiling for quite some time. All this issue about, yes, a global pandemic. Yes, there is a whole lot of socioeconomic racial tensions that are affecting communities, that are affecting countries, that are affecting our world. There are political upheavals, not just in our nation, but all over the world, and we didn't get here overnight. This has been building for a long time. Now, there are several issues at play, so I don't want to make any sort of um, unfair distillation, but I want to help. I think most of this, if you can really try to refine it just from a, uh, the standpoint of trying to get your arms wrapped around it, a lot of what's going on in our world today, our country today, even our community today, comes down to one very simple word, and it's influence. All about influence. I want to try today, if I can, to equip all of us with a looking glass with a lens called influence, that you and I can look at our world through the lens of, oh, what's going on as people are trying to marshal, use, perhaps even hijack influence. And the reason I want to talk about this is because it is the summer of 2020, and we are right in the middle of our series on vision for Bethel. Now, when I say vision for Bethel, let me be very clear about what I mean. I mean unapologetically, unashamedly, this is our travel brochure. This is what we would love to be. This is the imagine, if you will. This is the white sand beach, the palm trees, the blue water, the crystal clear sky. This is the vision. Imagine, if you will. This is what we believe God has called our church to in this context, in this community, at this time. Last week, we looked at growing communities, that we are to be aggressively opposed to the cultural idea of atomism, where we all just atomically sort of flitter off into the cosmos as individuals, but instead we are to make molecules at every level to grow communities. And again, community is where two or more people share love for a third. 
That's why we in the church world can have authentic community because we love Jesus and you love Jesus and y'all over there, or if you're from Appalachia, yuns love Jesus too. And we share in our love for Jesus. That's community. This morning, we want to talk about building leaders. We want to be very intentional as a church on the whole, as a campus in particular, about building leaders because leaders are those people who have and are using influence properly. I want to define influence. Influence at its most basic elemental level is this. Influence is the power to change or affect someone or something. That's all it is. Influence is the power to change or affect someone or something. And there are all sorts of voices that seemingly at this time of year, on this cycle of of media volume, seem to grow that are trying to capitalize on the FUD factor. All sorts of voices that are capitalizing on fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Rather than being voices of truth that point people to the sacrifice of Jesus. By the way, that's the biblical model of what a priest is. A priest merely points people to the sacrifice. If you are a believer, you are a priest the priesthood of the believer. We simply point people to the sacrifice. This is Jesus. This is what he's done. Yeah, 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 yeah. But this is what Jesus is. This is who he is. This is what he's done. We point people to the sacrifice. That's what priests do. But there are a whole lot of voices increasing in volume, trying to garner and gather influence that are trying to draw others to themselves to raise the blood pressure of other people. And I want to be very very direct. All of those other voices are simply echoing the singular voice of Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent comes to the woman and says, yes, but have you thought of? Yes, but have you thought of? God's holding out on you. There's something more. There's something better. Every other voice that is not pointing people to the sacrifice is singularly emanating from the garden in Genesis chapter 3. I want you to know that. There are those voices that say, this is the truth of who Christ is and what he has done, and there is every other message. It's a voice that is against and opposed to the gospel of God. So, let me say my second application point. We're sort of front-loading our applications on the, on the beginning of our message this morning that we'll dive into our text. Second point goes like this. An identity built on anything other than the finished work of God in Christ will drive you to fear and then hate. Always. Now, that's rather exclusivistic for me to say. I'm sorry. Not sorry. Take it up with the death-proof king. An identity built on anything other than the finished work of God in Christ will drive you to fear and then hate always. Now, again, I want you to look through the lens of influence. All the different voices, all the different stories, all the different vignettes that you hear. On what, in what, is that person or that group's identity centered and built? If your identity is built on wealth, it's all about what I have, what I have amassed, what I've acquired. Then you will despise those who have less than you. You will look down upon them. You can't help it. Your depravity will completely make you descend 
If your identity is built on wealth, you will despise those who have less than you and those who have more than you. You will automatically assume they got it by unfair means. If that's your identity. If your identity is built on success and strength, you will disdain those who are weak and failing. And you will look at them and say, why aren't they working as hard as I am? If your identity is built on success or strength, you will look at those who are stronger than you and you will resent them. How come they got a lucky break and I didn't? If your identity is built on your education and your accomplishment, you will always look down on, instinctively, without even meaning to, on those who are less educated. And you will always be in the business of stretching your soul, trying to be like somebody else who might have more education and accomplishment than you do. If your identity is built on your nationality, your ethnicity, your race, your cause, your socioeconomic status, if that's who you are in your mind's eye, in your soul scope, then you will always revile anyone who isn't like you. They will be less than you and you will be above them. Now, all you have to do is turn on the news or turn on the interweb and begin looking. That's the issue in our world today. All of these people who have an identity built on something, anything other than the finished work of God in Christ, they are driven to fear and then hate always. And fists clench and voices raise and clubs are swung. But friends, we have the answer. Now, secular society has all sorts of ways of cleverly trying to mask that and paint over the termites, if you will. But this is a huge issue. It is a sin problem, and it infects every single human being. And the human problem requires a divine solution. It is the gospel. The only thing on which, in which we must build and place our identities this is when we are able to use influence to proclaim the good news that God has done it. It is finished. And so our big idea for this morning goes like this. As we're talking about building leaders, our big idea is simply this. God uses people to reach people. God uses people to reach people. This is influence the way God intends for his people to use it. God uses people to reach people. Because in case we have forgotten, God actually wants to reach people. God loves people, even those people that you and I disagree with. It's true. As we approach November 3rd, God loves all of these people, and he's going to use these people to reach people. So now, let's have a quick survey of 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you've got your Bible, I want to invite you to open with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to walk through this fairly briefly, and then I'll have one final landing application point, and then we'll be done. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is the Apostle Paul writing to his protege, Timothy. Timothy is sitting in Ephesus. Last week, we were in the city of Ephesus again. We were in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. This week we're in 1 Timothy 3. All this fall, Lord willing, we're going to be in the book of 1 John, which is Ephesus. I want you to be very familiar with the city of Ephesus. It is incredibly central and significant in your New Testament. 
This is where the apostle John goes after the dispersion of Israel. More than likely takes Mary, mother of Jesus, is over 100 years old as pastor emeritus when Timothy is also the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Paul has planted this. A lot of things go on in the city of Ephesus. In the shadow of the temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, it was a very dark spiritual place. We learn from Acts 19 that the commercial tradesmen and the politicians had an enormous amount of influence. There were these men called Asiarchs who were incredibly wealthy that funded the Ephesian uh, version of the Olympic Games. And Paul befriended some of them. Ephesus is very significant. And Paul writes this to his protege in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times... Oh, that's 2 Timothy. We don't want to be there. That's very important stuff too, but we're going to hold off on that one. <laughs> in the end times, there will be seasons of difficulty. That's true. Now we're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, the saying, at least I didn't ask people to give to Young Life. Can I get an amen? Okay. <laughs> the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now this verse is absolutely packed. If anyone, this is a trustworthy saying, this was an early sort of a, a doctrinal expression that they would say in the church, in the early part of the formation of these churches that Paul plants. This is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires, this word is not the same word that you would use for someone who has military or business ambition. No, it's the word that a father has for his children. Reaching out is the literal translation. If anyone is reaching out the same way that a father would reach out for their children, that's a noble thing. If he wants the office of overseer, this word overseer, episkopos, you can probably hear in there, it's where we get our word for episcopal, an overseer, one who sees over. And these words are synonymous essentially in our New Testament, elder, presbyteros, uh, pastor, teacher, all these words are simply different facets of those people who have an office of leadership in the church. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's really interesting. Noble is the word kalos. It is beautiful. It's lovely. It's good. It's whole. It's right. Now, we try to practice a lot of times in 20th and early 21st century Christianity this sort of false humility of the aw shucks. Oh, I don't know about all. Yeah, who am I? No, no. No, Paul says if anyone aspires to this, has a longing to embrace spiritually the people of God. It's a beautiful thing. It's a noble, wonderful, right, whole, healthy thing. It is to be sought. Now Paul's going to give us a whole lot of qualifiers about this. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. says the idea that nobody holds anything against them. That is verifiable for a pattern or a season or a trajectory. They must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, now as you can imagine, over the last couple hundred years, libraries have been written about what this exactly means and how do we actually practice this. The literal translation would be, they must be a one-woman man. It's the best I can do. They must be a one-woman man. 
Every church, therefore, since it is a little bit vague, decides corporately how we are going to actually affect and implement this policy. He'll say the same thing in Titus chapter 1. An elder must be a one-woman male. So we do the best we can to interpret and apply this. The office of overseer, elder, must be a one-woman male. Very specific in gender. If you've got a problem with any of those issues, I totally understand. I invite you to email mike at bethelbible.com. He would love for you to buy him a cinnamon roll and walk through all of that. Must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded. Ah, their thinking must be exemplary. That's interesting. Self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Ooh, that word hospitable. Being kind to people that they might not ordinarily be kind to. Liking those, philoxenoi, liking those whom they might not otherwise like for somebody else's sake. Not because I have anything to gain from you is why I'm being nice to you. No, I like you because I love my death-proof king. That's hospitality. Opening my home, perhaps, or showing kindness in some other ways. Being nice to people whom I might not ordinarily be nice to. Liking those who I might not ordinarily like. And let me just say as directly as I can, man, I, I really liked working here. In this politically charged season, what if we were nice to people, just kind, to people who aren't going to vote like you? I had lunch with a guy on Thursday, and he said, let me tell you about this person. She's just the kindest person. And I thought, I stopped him. I said, isn't it sad that that's, like, remarkable? Like, oh, my gosh, that's so refreshing here that there's a kind person these days. He said, oh, no, she's the kindest person. I was like, I got to meet her. Who is she? We need to build a zoo or something for her. Respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I want you to see what's happening here. Paul is setting up influence. Paul has a definition of leadership that is probably different than a lot of our corporate or academic definitions of leadership. Paul will essentially say leadership is influence by example. Influence, the power to change someone or something. Leadership is influence by example. And God uses people to reach people. So Paul now here is going to emphasize the family. Why? Because your family has to be sinless and your children have to be borderline Amish. No. But the giving of the gospel must be normative. As your little clan, your little tribe, your little family, as you inculcate, as you breed in the reality, the bedrock basis of the gospel, we're Bartons. We ain't got no money, but we love Jesus. From the fetal stage, we told our boys, Bartons don't lie, Bartons don't hit. And we don't lie about hitting. 
And then we begin to build on these things, these identity statements. Bartons are fun to be around. Bartons love Jesus. Bartons eat their weight in cheese. We build these identity statements in. We love Jesus. He is central. He's not a myth or an idea. He's not even a hero in a cape. He's God. (laughs) And he's the answer to all of my ill. They're not sinless any more than their dad is. Mom's pretty close. Verse 5, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. That's interesting, lest we forget that the devil is a real entity, not a concept of the social wrongs in our world, is a real entity, a person with a will of malice to thwart and upend the purpose and the plan and the peace of God. And he's coming after people in the church. We must never, ever forget that. Verse 7, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, this is the office of overseer, episkopos. We would synonymously say an elder or a pastor. Now, Paul's going to continue on with the polity of the church. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That's a wonderful, wonderful expression. I don't know if you know all of our deacons. I believe we have nine at present. I would look at any one of our deacons. I'm making eye contact with some of them here this morning. These guys who hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience does not mean they are sinless. Doesn't. It means they have placed their full weight on the centrality of the finished work of God in Christ and they live accordingly. Verse 10, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Not sinless, blameless. Nothing held against them. They have errors and issues, but they have thrown them at the foot of the cross in all transparency and humility. And they keep short accounts with God and with one another. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded. Faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Again, literally, a one-woman male. Managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. See, God reaches people with people. He uses people to reach people. That's what God does. And Paul's going to give us these two offices to demonstrate what leaders are like. We want to be very intentional about always being in the business of building leaders, raising up those people who will use their influence to reach others because God uses people to reach people. Now, Paul gives 15 different little facets, 15 different little ingredients into the leadership casserole. But really, you can boil those four things down to four categories. So let me just help as you think about what does it look like to be a leader in the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament? 
four broad categories to sort of organize these 15 facets. Some people say these are qualifications for elder or deacon. My friend, hero, mentor, Dan Boland says, no, these are qualities of an elder or deacon. Fine, I like that too. The first is general character. The office of elder or deacon must be someone who is characterized by general good character. All these little things like hospitality, not a drunk, not abusive, not a brawler, not a bully, not a manipulator, not a deceiver. All those things, both for elder and deacon, are someone who has good general character. By and large, yes, they still struggle with a sin nature, but by and large, their identity is centered on the finished work of God in Christ. That's a very broad category. The second is very laser-focused. Sexual purity. Paul will spend a lot of time on this. There are sins that are outside the body, but sexual sin is the one category of sin that is against one's own body. And yes, it is significant. So where there's general character, very broad, the office of elder and deacon needs to also be characterized by sexual purity, a one-woman male. Thirdly, we've already talked about this a little bit, family leadership. Again, not having a sinless household, but building the ground of the home on the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. That is central. It is not awkward and weird when dad starts going, hey, let's have a Bible story. Have you ever heard of Jonah in the lion's den? Uh, no, 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 no. It's just, this is our language. We're fluent in gospel. It's what a leader in the church must be. Fourth, the fourth category, able to teach and defend sound doctrine. Able to say, I hear what you're saying. However, the word says this. Now, elders have a little bit different nuance. Deacons have a little bit different nuance. You'll notice that one of the greatest sermons ever preached is by a deacon. No, not Jason Mazingo or Dash Canal. Those were awesome, by the by. But in the book of Acts, chapter 7, Stephen is a deacon, full of the Holy Spirit, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. But generally speaking, I want you to know this about our elders and our deacons, the way we identify elders and deacons. Elders primarily lead with their words and their doctrine. Doctrine simply means teaching. Elders principally, primarily lead with their words and their doctrine. Deacons are a slight bit nuanced differently. Deacons lead with their works and their doing. And one is not more important than the other. They're just different. Please hear me. Deacons are not junior varsity, second string to the elders, that's a secular fallen notion. Paul will have none of it. Elders lead principally through their doctrine and their words. Deacons with their doing and their works. Now, here's what's really interesting. This is a letter that Paul intends to have been read aloud in the church at Ephesus. So as this is being read, Timothy's got to be sitting there going... Yeah, because there's supposed to be an accountability of the congregation that there is a covering. This is what we expect. Not sinlessness, but nobility. Leadership 
influence because so much is at stake. I can just about guarantee you every church or minister that has fallen in any capacity has done so because they have successfully eschewed, gotten rid of any level of accountability or covering, and they've operated solo. We don't do that here. We have a covering several layers thick, and praise God that we do, or all of us would be so far off the reservation so quickly. No, this is about accountability. Now, let me be very quick to correct, and we'll end with this. It is possible that you and I read these qualifications, these qualities of 1 Timothy 3, and we get sort of swole, and we go, yes, that's the life that I want. That's the life that works. That sounds like someone who's got it all together. I'm going to do and be that. Stop it. You'll never make it. By Monday morning, you'll be in a flaming wreckage. This is not about you trying to do more. Be better. You and I cannot do that. The book of Galatians is written exclusively to this point. It's not about you and I trying to be better. We will always fail if that's our mission. It's not through our goodness or our effort or our strength. It is the finished work of God in Christ. And so an elder or a deacon is someone who is persistently reminded, this isn't me, but I am in Christ and I am indwelled by his spirit. And I don't exactly know how I got to be an elder or a deacon, but the scriptures tell me that the spirit of God chose me. I want to remind those of you who are elders and deacons in church this morning, either online, on one of our other floors, or in this very room. I don't know how you think you got to be a pastor or an elder or a deacon. It's kind of not your business. The Spirit of God from eternity past said that's one that will influence by example my people. It's a beautiful thing. So I would say to you, those who are elders or deacons, how do they wield their influence? Well, we are Bethel Bible Church. We believe this down to the very marrow of our souls. Third and final point is this. Godly influence wields God's word. That's how we know we're influencing rightly, is that it is congruent with God's word. Godly influence wields God's word word. It's God word, God's word that changes things. It's how God by his spirit does a work in the lives of his people. And so leadership and influence in this church is about rightly handling God's word and being full of his spirit to lead his people. Now, this is the portion of our service where typically and historically, we bring a whole bunch of dudes up here and we lay hands on one another. Kind of weird out of context, I admit. Particularly in the season of a pandemic, we're not going to do that. But I also want you to know that for a number of reasons at this campus, we did not install new deacons or new elders this go-round. It's not because we're making a statement. It's because as we prayed about it, as we prayed about it, as we prayed about it, as we talked about it and met and talked about it, this is what we felt like. This is what God's doing. We didn't see anything that felt like we needed to elevate someone to that office. But I want to be very clear. Both the Apostle Paul and we in church leadership always want to distinguish and differentiate. 
There is the office of elder. There is the office of deacon. And there are many, many people who are in the function of elder and deacon who do not actually have the office. I don't know why. Sometimes God calls people to the office. Sometimes he doesn't. Many of you are serving sacrificially and selflessly and thank you and praise God who don't hold the particular office. Let me say this as directly as I can. Nowhere in the New Testament will you find that the office of elder or deacon is ever given to a person to celebrate them, to honor them, to promote them. Never. What we see in the New Testament is elders who are installed in the position of elder, deacon who are installed in the office of deacon are those who are already, I'm going to make up two verbs here, who are already eldering, who are already deaconing. All we do is say, you're eldering already. We've watched you, we've observed you. We're thankful for your ministry. We want to install you in this office as we pray about it. We've been watching you. You're deaconing already. You make these qualifications. You have these qualities. We want to install you into this office. That's how it goes. It's not because, well, he's been here for seven years. I guess it's time to give him a letter jacket and make him a deacon. We don't do that. The last thing we ever want to do is install someone in an office simply because of their time present. We don't find any principle for that in the New Testament. Instead, we want to be very intentional about building leaders. God uses people to reach people. Those who are influencing by example. And so, as you're hearing this this morning from Paul, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you think, I think, I sense somehow God's call on my life to serve in that capacity. I would love to talk with you about this or any of our other pastors would, or any of our elders would. I would love to serve in the office of deacon. I think God's calling me to that. We would love to hear from you about that. We try to arrange all that we do, all of our ministries and volunteer leadership positions along those same lines. So please hear this. It is a noble, beautiful thing. God uses people to reach people, and we believe that in this place and from this place, God wants to reach even more. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for those who you have placed because of your sovereignty and your goodness and grace in positions of leadership. And I do thank you for those guys and their wives and their families that they are exemplary by all the things that they do inside and outside of these walls. Not sinless, we know that. But God, thank you for your goodness to us. We said it last week, we want to say it again. Your gift to the church is gifted people. So we thank you for these. Father, if there are any here this morning, first of all, who don't know you, that want to give their lives to the cause of Christ, to build their identity singularly on that reality, we pray, Father, that they would step out of death into life and that they would believe that you would give them the courage to speak with someone they know and love and trust about these things. For anyone else, Father, in, in this room, on any of our three floors, at home, watching online, that feels the, the pull or the push to serve in a capacity of elder or deacon, would you give them the courage to not stay silent but to contact one of us, that you would continue to use this place, this body of believers, to build leaders, to reach people. Father, we love you and we pray all these things 
in the power of your spirit, and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks again so much for being with us on all three floors here this morning and at home online. Thanks for your patience, those of you online who are waiting for us to come on with our stream. Let me ask you all to stand. We're going to have a word of benediction, and then our team's going to have a parting closing song for us. From Deuteronomy chapter 6, may the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and may you reflect his glory and his grace in an exemplary fashion and have influence. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week.